And so in our society, we uh, we almost lose our families at the age of six and we become uh, a member of a. Um, let us say a commercial organization. So, so I'm curious, I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I understand what you're saying about like not being able to trust a lot of these translations and, you know, aside from spending 40 years in, in, Thailand, in Thailand and learning actually the culture and the, and the translations, I mean, I'm wondering um, what are the things I can do to immerse myself in the Dhamma and make also these sessions the most productive as I can too. Um, like what, where do I start with like, what can I trust? Um, again, I guess like, it sounds like we're kind of like wiping away a lot of the things I've been given over the past couple of years. And I, I'm trying to figure out like, where do I start now? Like, what do I rebuild from? Okay, that's exactly what uh, we have in mind here to teach. So first off, this is your first session. Congratulations for calling. And I uh, um, hope that we can become good friends over time. I hope so too. That in fact, um, one of the bigger problems of Western society is uh, they picked it up wrongly from, uh, from Asia, but it has to do with the relationship between the teacher and the student. In the West, the teacher and the student is always in a one up, one down position in the sense that the psychologist and the client will always remain the psychologist and the client. There's payment going on and there is uh, um, an information and exchange flow that's set up. The same thing is true between a lawyer and his client, an accountant and his client. In other words, the accountant and the client never change roles. They don't swap. That's not ethical. Okay, in other words, if I'm an accountant and I have another accountant do my books, then that accountant does not, uh, then I don't do that accountant's books, right? That's not the way that we do things in the West. So the, the, the teacher remains a teacher, the student remains a student. But we're talking about within the context of uh, the Sangha, and that and in the in the context of the sangha, we're all family. We take care of each other. We're friends. We're brothers. We're not one up and one down, but whether we come together in friendship, this is the uh, the difference. And so we we want to start it from that perspective right from the very beginning. Is is that uh, the uh, while there is going to be information parted, it has to be done at a, in a mutual way. And so, uh, in fact, the way to get started on that is, is that there is a sutta. The name of the sutta, surprisingly enough, is called the Half Sutta. H-A-L-F, Half Sutta. In this sutta, Ananda comes from Sariputta to the Buddha and uh, says that Sariputta says that friendship is half of the Dhamma. And that gives the Buddha an opportunity to really perk things up. And he says, oh, no, Ananda, friendship is not half the Dhamma. It's the whole Dhamma. 
And what the difference is, is that you can think of friendship is like the friendship between one on the outside of uh, uh, another human. Like person A and person B, and those two are friends, but that's only half the journey. And that's the second half of the journey. The primary journey is for one to become friends with all of the parts within him. If he cannot become friends with all of that which within him, then he's not going to be able to be friends with all of the parts of that other person. And so basically the practice of Anapanasati um, is getting that internal system set up. So that you could say then that friendship is half inside and half outside, which means that, that the two parts of that is Anapanasati and Metta. If we don't have the internal set up correctly, then we're not going to be able to relate to the world correctly. And the world itself has uh, uh, been set up in such a way, our society is set up in such a way, so that each individual person in that society uh, is almost friendless. No one has any friends at all. We are, uh, especially in the United States, a culture of in rugged individualist. The family structures have been broken down. The family structures were broken down when America was discovered. The pilgrims came over, slaves came over, busting up their families. You had wars with the British and that busted up families. Then you had a civil war and that busted up families. And then you had Western Ho and that busted up families. Then you had a depression and that busted up families. And then you had, you got to get a job and that busted up families. In fact, uh, uh, people will go get a job on the other side of the country because the job is more important than the family. And then they lose their family. And, their and the cost of that loss of the family was a job they took. Okay, so this is the West now, and that we have lost a lot of our relationships. And basically what the teaching of the Buddha is, is to come back and reestablish all of those relationships. Now, one of the major relationships that got messed up for, from the beginning, we could almost go so far as to call it the original sin. The original sin was happened, something happened way back when, and then that same mistake was passed down generation after generation after generation and after generation. And that as that happened, it actually got more severe. And so we can say that the way that a child is raised from the very, very get go, when as soon as it's born, it bonds with the mom, mom bonds with the child. There's all this oxycodone and other uh, brain chemicals that are happening. And the child is nourished and fed and taken care of up to a certain age. And then something happens. The original sin kicks in, judgments kicks in. Kid, it's time you stop getting nurtured and start doing what you were told to do. Learn your ABCs, learn your one, two, threes, pick up your toys, clean your room, 
do what you're told to do. And all of the nurturing gets lost. And so in our society, we uh, we almost lose our families at the age of six and we become uh, a member of a. Um, let us say a commercial organization. That in some cases in Asia are families, but in the West they become enterprises. And so we spend all of our time in school doing what we're told to do, going along to get along, which is actually an instinctual behavior that in fact, much of what the Dhamma is about is teaching us to come out of our instinctual behavior and start acting wisely. Thinking of the instincts is almost like an automatic uh, pilot or a program to get started or like a basic operating system but with it with the basic operating system you still need applications to get anything done okay so um the the instincts that we have uh are actually around the kinds of clinging that we have the buddha has four modes of clinging and the four modes of clinging are actually the four methods of instinctual behavior. An example of that is clinging to material possessions or clinging to the way that things should be done or clinging to belief systems or clinging to one's own personality. These are the four modes of um, uh, clinging and also those are the four major instincts materialism or um, uh, holding objects for protection or whatever ownership of property is basically what we're talking about is instinctual and it's called the procreation uh, uh, instinct. Procreation instinct when it's gone wild is when a man owns a woman. He bought and paid for her. And the ceremony for the um, uh, conclusion of that buying and selling is called a wedding. And so this is property. And that we have a lot of that come into uh, the practice that uh, was labeled spiritual materialism. What is spiritual materialism other than wanting things in the spiritual world rather than wanting things in the physical world? An example of uh, spiritual materialism is wanting enlightenment, wanting being free from suffering, wanting things that we don't have, uh, wanting past life experiences, wanting to believe in things. But the big one is wanting enlightenment. And so here you have all of these meditation students that are giving themselves an awful lot of dukkha because they want something, enlightenment, that they don't have. This is the biggest issue then, is how can we come out of this state of wanting things that we don't have and another way of talking about that is putting up with things that are hard to put up with. 
because if things are hard to put up with and we don't want to put up with things that are hard to put up with, then we want them to go away. So wanting things to come or wanting things to go away and the ignorance about how to do act correctly is actually the full definition of the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha. The actual cause of dukkha is wanting things that we don't have. The actual cause of, of dukkha is trying to get rid of the things that we have that we don't want, but is always that desire about something that's not now. It's off into the future. So I, I have a headache, therefore I, I take a pill hoping that that pill will have the headache go away. Later, if the headache goes away, was it the pill that I took or not? Our society would say, yes, you took that pill. You bought that pill from a pharmaceutical company whose business it is to sell these pills to make headaches go away. Therefore, it was the headache uh, was chased away by the pill. But in actuality, we don't know that. We don't know this cause and effect, not very well. That's why it needs to be investigated. This is what the whole investigation is really about, is the investigation of the causes of suffering so that we can come to become free of it. So we have this thing called the Four Noble Truths that is nothing more than the entire teachings of the Buddha uh, all packaged together as Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, and we do the first unpacking. And that uh, unpacking of Dukkha is, uh, uh, the Four Noble Truths is, is first off that Dukkha does exist. But many people in the West will translate that into life is suffering. Life is not suffering. The suffering is always optional. In fact, most people want to stay alive. If they, in fact, believe that life is suffering, then there would be mass suicide. I mean, why would humans want to live on this planet if it was nothing but suffering? We could all have a great big ceremony and then all the nuclear bombs go off all at the same time and we just wipe ourselves out. But many people don't want that. They cling to life, right? Why do we cling to life if life is suffering? The answer is, is that life itself is not suffering. That suffering is something that humans do with life ignorantly. Life itself is not suffering, which means that you can stay alive and still be free from suffering. And a lot of people think that's not true. The only way out of getting out of suffering completely is death itself. And then they say, well, wait a minute, what about breathing? Isn't breathing work? The answer is, if you like breathing, it's marvelous. And if you don't like breathing, it's dukkha. <laughs> it's a matter up to you. And so here we come now with uh, um, the third noble truth, 
just as a way of speaking the, through it, most of the Western methods of uh, teaching Buddhism and all the books, they rarely spend much time in the Third Noble Truth talking about it. There's actually not much to say about the Third Noble Truth when you don't spend a lot of time there because you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But basically, the invitation from the Buddha is, is that we should be spending more and more and more of our time in that third noble truth state of being free from dukkha, which means that you need to be on investigation to find out those moments when, in fact, you are free from suffering. Because normally the idea is, is that we're in dukkha all the time. No, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. And so we have to start investigating to find out when it is and when it's not there. And we have to pay tribute when that third noble truth is there. When we're free from suffering, we can, wow, what a relief it is. No suffering now. Everything's okay. So we need to start investigating that so that we can find out what it feels like. And now the fourth noble truth is actually a method. I know that it's called a path, and that's the wrong translation. It's not a path, it's a method. An example of this would be that uh, the key, or let us say, the door to enlightenment is locked. And all you have to do is turn the key and open the door. But if you have to go down a path, that means that the door that we're talking about that has to be unlocked is a million miles from here, and we got to go walk over to it before we can open it. And the answer is no, the door is right here in front of us. It's not a path, it's a method. You don't have to go any place. That we can think of, in fact, the path is merely the path of life is just how do we spend this mind moment? What are we doing now? What is this step? So this is actually the method that we have. Now, there are more than one methods. Even though they talk about the Eightfold Noble Path, most of the teachings of uh, in Western Buddhism is an Eightfold Ordinary Path. And that it's taught in a way of, one of the ways it's taught is Sila Samati Panya. Sila Samati Panya means that the child starts with Sila. You got to behave yourself first. And when you behave yourself, then you can start to do some mental training. And once you get the mental training completed, then you can do uh, the Panya part, Sila Samati Panya, which is also purification of uh, Sila, purification of the mind, and then purification of view. Purification of view is, in fact, the wisdom part. This is the normal way it's taught. And also, when people go to a meditation retreat or to a, a wad on the Buddha days once a week, they will do a ceremony that has to do with taking of the triple gem, Buddham Saranam Gachami, Dhammam Saranam Gachami, and also they take the precepts. 
Panatipata we Ramani Sukabadam Samatiyami Atinadana we Ramani, you know, those are things. But they do it as a ceremony to get people kind of started, I guess. Mm. But when the mind is in fact noble, when the student is practicing correctly, then it goes in a different direction. It does not go sila samati panya, but it actually starts with panya and then uh, with samati, it brings on finally sila. Sila is the outcome, not the forerunner. So the cause and effect relationships become backwards. So we have the ordinary student, and so long as the ordinary student practices Sila Samati Panya, they will never get any place. It's only when they turn things around and start practicing Panya Sila Samati, excuse me, Panya Samati Sila, that things begin to go correctly. So the normal ordinary method is uh, not doesn't work that we have to turn things around. Okay, so now let's look at the Eightfold Noble Method in the right way. We start with one's right noble view. Noble view comes first. And in order to understand noble view, we have to understand the distinction between uh, wrong view, ordinary right view, and noble view. And <clears throat> this is actually a long topic that needs a lot of discussion later. But basically, we can boil it down to that wrong view is I can get away with anything. Ordinary right view is, oh, no, you can't. There are rules, there are laws, there are common machines, and there are ways to prove that you will not get away with whatever you're doing. Okay. So that's wrong view. I can get away with it. Right view is uh, no, you can't get away with it. We're going to have police and armies and um, uh, shotguns. And uh, if we can't get you to behave yourself that way, we're going to bring in religion, the big guns. To make you behave yourself. OK, so that's ordinary right view. And our whole society is built upon that. Follow the rules. If we had a society had no rules, society would fall apart, but it wouldn't fall apart into nobility. It would fall apart into chaos. OK, uh, so things would go backwards like that, and that's the danger that a, a student can hear the noble Dhamma and then say, oh, what do you mean uh, that they're that I can disregard the police and the army and the religion and then go do what I want to do? And the answer to that is if you go and do what you want to do, but it harms someone, then that's not noble. You cannot go and do what you want to do. You have to uh, do it in a noble way, which means that the nobility is, is that we're going to re uh, remove dukkha, not add to it. And so one's right noble view is basically an investigation of what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. Or another way of saying it is, is that one's right noble view is an investigation of what is dukkha and what is not dukkha. So that we can see first noble truth, this is dukkha, and we can see 
of the cause of that dukkha, and then we can see this is freedom from dukkha. Because we can make that distinction between what is dukkha and what is not dukkha. This is what the investigation is all about. That's why uh, right noble view comes first. And yet, if you look at many ways of looking at it, well, Panya comes last for the Sila Samadhi Panya craft. Mm -hmm. But with our method, the, teach, the Buddhist method, it's the very first thing we do. Well, almost. Because the first thing that we have to do is to remember to investigate. And then we do the investigation. And that memory to do the investigation is what we call uh, sati. We can think of sati as wake up. That word has been wrongly translated into English as mindfulness. And by translating it as mindfulness, it's lost all of its power. But the real power is to continue to remember, to be here now, to wake up to this present moment so that we can investigate this present moment. If we can't wake up to this present moment, we can't investigate to see what's happening right this very moment. So now we've got, go ahead. I see, so that's interesting. So when you think of mindfulness uh, uh, is often talked about as like an ends to itself. But it sounds like the way you're saying is it's, it's, it's actually kind of like the starting point. It's just, it's just the means to get you into the, to the being able to investigate. Right. Oh, and, oh, interesting. And it is needed mostly that the most important skill to be developed is sati. And here's why. Um, have you ever heard of Murphy's Law? Mm -hmm. Yes. What is it? That anything that can go wrong will. And? You've only uh, given the first half. Is something always goes goes wrong? Well, yeah, I don't know. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. I see. Okay, an example of that is a hotel. A brand new hotel has got a brand new computer system, that, and the hotel has a thousand rooms, and the, and the computer system is set up for a thousand rooms. When will the computer system fail? On opening night? On an average, just everything, or does the or does the computer system fail when the when there is a convention and the hotel is full? Probably, probably the last one, I guess. Ah, exactly right. Any system under stress fails. That would not fail when it was not under stress. Okay, Biku um, Achan. Bhikkhu Tanisharo actually uses the word dukkha, translates it into the word stress. And the old engineer uh, comes up and says, yes, that's exactly correct. Any system will fail under stress. That's when it's most likely to fail. Okay, so that means that the same thing is true about not just all physical reality, but it's true about animals and humans also. If we don't remember sati, if we can't remember 
to use the skills we have at the worst possible moment, then our skills fail us. Doesn't matter how good the skills are, if you forget your skills, you get to use the skills, then the skills are useless. This is why sati is the number one skill to be developed. And this is the reason why we want to keep developing it over and over and over again. This becomes part of our practice, and I'll explain that in just a moment to you. But the next thing is, is that we have to put these two things together. Sati, to wake up and to look. That would be basically the way that you've heard it uh, expressed of wake up and smell the coffee. Why? Why would you want to smell the coffee? You're going to drink some coffee, right? You're going to do something, right? <laughs> to wake up and to smell the coffee means now you've got something to do. All right. This is where one's right effort comes in. If you wake up and you investigate and you find something that is unwholesome there, then we need to remove it. Now, we can actually use the Mahasi method called the noting and say, okay, noting means to wake up and to investigate. But once you wake up and investigate, now what are you going to do? You have to investigate in the sense of making a discernment or making a choice between is this thought wholesome or not wholesome? If it is not wholesome, then we need to throw it out and put another hope, more wholesome thought in. This is the real teaching of the Buddha that Mahasi misses, and that's right effort. The right effort to not just to note and to see what's there, but to throw it out. The Buddha used the exact words of, aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, uh -huh, I see you, hindrance. Aha, uh -huh, I see you, unwholesome thought. Aha, uh -huh, I see you, obstruction. Now, obstructions to what? Hindrances to what? Hindrances to being able to see clearly and to experience things directly. In other words, if this is happening in reality and I'm thinking this about it, then what I'm thinking about reality and what reality is are different. One of the working definitions that we can have of dukkha is, is that we do not actually live in reality. We live in a mentally constructed world. And the further that mentally constructed world is from actual reality, then the more likely we are going to be dissatisfied. But when our perception gives us an understanding inside that is ex very close to exactly what reality actually is, then we're much less likely to suffer. And so uh, along with this Eightfold Noble Path, we actually begin to understand the nature of the mind, which the Buddha calls Paticca Samuppada. Have you ever heard of the term Paticca Samuppada? Okay. Know. It's also called the 12 Steps of Dependent Origination in English. No, I haven't heard that. Okay. 
what this basically means is, is that the mind works in a certain way. And the way that the mind works is that what we feel, what contacts us, what we have as an experience is not reality, but it is a constructed reality that's constructed on the inside of the mind. In other words, we do not live in 100% beginner's mind because if we were living in 100% beginner's mind, that means that we would have the, the mental understanding or the mental uh, memory systems of an infant. But as an adult, that means that we have spent our whole lives gathering up things and that gathering up of memories and feelings and the past is what the Buddha called Sankara. And we use the Sankara along with the sensory input uh, as part of our perception so that we can figure out what's going on. And this figuring out what's going on is often not what's actually going on. It's what we think is going on. And that uh, misconception is a definition of dukkha. Okay, so what we have to do is investigate over and over again to begin to see closer and closer to what real reality is. And the way that we do that is by uh, eliminating the junk that we're adding to it, which would be called the unwholesome thoughts or the hindrances. So what we mean then is, is to remove unwholesome thoughts and to put wholesome thoughts into the mind. And we do that every time that we can see the thought is an unwholesome thought. And we remember to keep looking at what thoughts are wholesome and what thoughts are not wholesome. Okay, so now we have three of these. We have right view, we have right sati, and we have right effort. If we keep putting right effort in over and over and over again to put wholesome thoughts into the mind, then we begin to develop an attitude. And that attitude is the attitude of success. I can do this. I can clean my mind. I can figure out what reality is. And when we begin to have that, that's actually the fourth element of the Eightfold Noble Path called Sama Sankapa of right view, excuse me, right attitude, or the actual attitudes that we have determine the actual thoughts that we have. So if we have a bad attitude about someone, we'll have a certain kind of thought. If we have a good attitude about that person, we'll have different kinds of thoughts, right? So mm -hmm. the attitude and thoughts, so you have a particular attitude about the Republican Party and that a thought that attitude about the Republican Party will then determine what kind of thoughts you have about the Republican Party. And so if we begin to change our thoughts, we can also begin to change our attitude. These are the first first four points of the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view right sati, right effort, and right attitude. When we get that right attitude and those other things together, this brings about a new kind of mind. It's called the organized mind, or it's called uh, a mind that is unified. Right 
noble unification of mind in the Pali is area sama samati. Samati means bringing the factors together or making the mind organized. And the word samati does not translate as the word concentration. But in fact, everyone who is practicing concentration meditation is going off in the actual wrong direction of the practice. The Buddha does not recommend concentration at all under any circumstances. He, in fact, recommends gathering the factors together so that things are complete and whole. And so I offer you my favorite uh, example of that frozen concentrated orange juice. Right? You've heard of it. You're smiling. Mm -hmm. I know you've heard of it. All right. So. Who do you know drinks frozen concentrated orange juice? I, I know anybody does. Nobody drinks that stuff. Not straight for sure. Everybody takes frozen or concentrated orange juice before they drink it. What did they do with it? Melt it, dilute it. Don't they put the water back in it? Mm, yeah, I guess put water in it, melt it, dilute it. Yeah, isn't that interesting that they actually put the water back in it to make it useful as orange juice. So orange juice is samati until the water is taken out of it and now is concentrated. In that regard, the concentration and the samati are exactly opposites. How could it possibly have gotten true then that the Christian translators from your back in the 1880s translated samadhi as concentration when there's really good reasons to think otherwise including direct examples hmm. the example that's used in the suttas is the example of a yurt which is very similar to a western teepee a western teepee you know Amer uh, native americans um have teepees some of them have few as four poles, but most of them will have 12 or even 20 poles. But all of those poles, those ridge poles, meet at a particular point, and they're all tied and bound together. That's the samati point, where all of the factors come together. And when they do come together, then the TP becomes stable. If you don't tie all of those ridge poles at the top, if you just lean them together, that TP is just going to fall apart. Right? Just yeah. like the human mind. But a samadhi mind is when everything is tied together, when everything is put together. I see. So samadhi isn't something that you ap apply to the other uh, the other parts of the, the Eightfold Path. It feels like it's something that maybe, is it something that emerges? Samadhi is the result, not the cause. I see. That this is actually what I just stated is the major difficulty in Western Buddhism is, is that people can constantly confuse what is the cause and what is the effect. An example of that is first they see the effect, then they see the cause, and so they think then that the, the effect caused the cause, to where in fact they were just not watching. And so another way is uh, one is to get it backwards. Another is to see them completely unrelated. 
Another one is to understand the subtleties of the distinction between causality and conditionality. That often what the Buddha is talking about is conditioning. But if we translate it that as causation, it can cause difficulties in understanding. OK, so an example of that is, is that if you breathe in very, very, very cold air, it'll hurt the lungs. OK, it's not the air that hurts the lungs. It's the condition of the air, the coldness of the air that hurts the lungs. So it's not the air that you breathe in that hurts the lungs or hurts the inside. It's the temperature. The so there's we have to understand the distinction between causality and conditionality. But basically, when things are caused or conditioned correctly, they come together, samati. Here's another silly example, the grandfather clock. When that grandfather clock is put together so that the wheels and the cogs all function together, then that means that that clock is samati. But you can take a sledgehammer to that grandfather clock and make it concentrated, but it won't work anymore. You can get that grandfather clock down to a size about like this. But by concentrating it, you're going to lose its functionality. Let's see. OK, so this is an amazing point that we have to understand that the Eightfold Noble Path is designed to get with right view, right sati, right effort and right um noble uh, attitude those things together bring about a unification of mind and that unification of mind is a mind that is all because it's unified it's complete and whole which means it doesn't need anything it doesn't need a motorcycle it doesn't need a church it doesn't need a new house it doesn't need a job it doesn't need anything because the mind is whole and if I don't need anything, then I'm unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. If I don't need anything, it's unlikely for me to go steal it. If I don't need anything, it's unlikely for me to go to molest the guy's wife. All right. So this is why we talk about that sila actually is the end product or the result of a unified mind and the unified mind is the result of correct practice of right right view right sati right effort and right um, attitude mm -hmm. this is the noble method the noble path and, and buddhism is not normally taught nobly it's taught ordinarily that this is what is, uh, in other words, what we're saying is, is that what is normally taught is the religion of Buddhism, not the actual freedom, freedom type. OK, so now that we have covered the Eightfold Noble Path in that regard and completed the Four Noble Truths as an overlying arching, now let's look at practical application. The practical application of the Eightfold Noble Path is, in fact, Anapanasati. The Anapanasati is actually practiced for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, the Satipatthana is what uh, the Mahasi method is built upon, to where the Thai and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is much more into the Anapanasati practice. 
but we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness. But we practice the four foundations of mindfulness for the fulfillment of the Sambhojana, the uh, seven factors of enlightenment. But the seven factors of enlightenment are nothing more than the completion of the Eightfold Noble Path. So you have the path or the method, and then you have the results of that method. And the results of the method is the Sambhojana, the seven enlightenment factors. There are actually factors of awakening now. And what are they? Unremitting mindfulness or unremitting sati. There we are. We've been practicing it, and now it's there. We've got it. It keeps coming back just when we need it the most. We've got Murphy on our side now. That sati is going to be there when we need it the most. Then that means that we have unremitting investigation that we need to investigate when we need it most, and we remember to do that. That means then that our effort, right effort, becomes energetic because we're enthusiastic about it. That one's right attitude actually changes the effort from being an effort into being a uh, a joy, into being enthusiastic. In the beginning, the student has to put in some effort. There is some effort that has to be put in, but as the student progresses, they get two things. One is the skill of that effort, which makes it not so much effort. In other words, you learn to carry, instead of carrying around all your goods in your hands, you learn to put them all in the backpack. And carrying a backpack is a whole lot easier because you got everything together than it is each individual item that we're carrying around. So one's right effort means that we, as things get organized, they're easier to carry. Also, the enthusiasm. You probably heard a song something like, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> okay, well, it's a story about uh, um, uh, two kids, um, uh, an elder brother about 10 years old carrying his three-year-old brother. And somebody asked him, well, why are you carrying your brother? Well, he's crippled. And he says, ain't he heavy? And the guy says, he's not heavy. He's my brother. That's <laughs> the enthusiasm. Okay. There's another example of that. And that is, is that mom sees the, uh, the trash is overflowing in the kitchen. So she calls her teenage son to come take out the trash. And grumbling, he does it. He he does. He goes along to get along. He does what he's told to do, and he takes the trash out. But it's kind of an effort. Now I pose that to a different scene, and that is the boy himself walks into the kitchen, sees all of that garbage, and he says, "Wow, mom will be really proud of me if I pick this stuff up and carry it out." And so he picks it up with glee, carries it out, and he's good to go. His effort was less because of his enthusiasm. In the first one, he had no enthusiasm, and so it was all effort. In the second one, he had enthusiasm, and so there was not much effort to it. Okay, once we have that right effort, the real right effort is easy effort. Because it's almost energetic. And we'll talk about how that works a little bit later. And other factors of the path, including piti sukha and uh, uh, relaxation, all of that stuff is unremitting, which means it comes easily automatically rather than having to take a lot of effort to get ourselves into that state. An example of that would be like the kid and his dad build a treehouse. 
In order to build a tree house, you have to put rungs on the tree. Once you get the tree uh, there, then it's a lot of work to put up the tree house. But then after several days, when the tree house is finished, the boy can climb up into the tree house easily. Hmm. It's almost effortless to climb into the tree house when you've got a tree house. It's a whole lot of work to climb into a tree house when you've got to build it along the way. Sure. This is what we're getting at then is, is that this effort becomes trivial. Once your sati is really strong, it's really easy to remember. So uh, we practice the seven factors of enlightenment then for the fulfillment of knowledge and deliverance. Knowledge and deliverance uh, is always done in that order. Number one is knowledge. In other words, you cannot get out of prison until you figure out how to get out of prison. You have to have the knowledge first. This is actually another way of talking about two kinds of enlightenment. Yeah, the word light. Turn the lights on. Daylight. Let's put a, let's shine a light on this. Hmm. We use that kind of light in the sense of knowledge. Enlightenment is knowledge, but there's another kind of enlightenment, and that enlightenment is not heavy. It's light. Hmm. So the knowledge first is to see what baggage you're carrying, and then once you see the baggage you're carrying that's inappropriate, you can throw that thing out. You don't have to carry it anymore. It's almost like once you get everything in your backpack, now you can do an inventory of that backpack and you say, wait a minute, I don't need to carry that rock. That five pound rock I've been carrying around is beautiful, but I don't need to carry it around anymore. And I can throw that rock out. That's being deliverance. So this is why we're practicing Anapanasati is for knowledge and deliverance. But it's based upon the Eightfold Noble Path. So here's how we work. The Anapanasati Sutta itself is set out in a formal method, formal or organized, and it's organized around the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling, mind, and mental objects. But the actual practice is natural. In other words, how can you have a long, deep breath if you don't remember a long, deep breath? So sati always comes first, even though the first item on the uh, uh, the list of Paranapada sati is sati, mindfully, he breathes in long. Mindfully, with sati, he breathes out long. So what we're saying is, is that we're going to develop sati with every in-breath and develop sati with every out-breath. We're going to remember, we're going to keep coming back over and over again to develop the sati so that we have sati once on the in-breath and once on the out-breath, just enough to get it going so that we mindfully breathe in and we mindfully breathe out. Normally, the, the breathing goes shallow. When we say breathe in long, we're not talking about topping up or going to 100%. And probably a good example just for working knowledge is, is that most people breathe from 40 to 
when they take in air, it goes up to 60. When they let out air, it goes down to 40, which means they've got a lot of dirty air in there and they've got a lot of room for clean air. What we're going to do is to change that ratio up to maybe 70-30 or in some cases 80-20, but we're not trying to top it up. This is not going to be work. We're looking actually as a relaxed breath. And yet most Westerners will say, I was doing your Anapanasati for a long time and then I got tired. Well, if you got tired, that means that you were working at it and we're looking for a relaxed breath, not a working breath. Mm. We relax the breathing and just take long, deep, easy, slow breaths. And by doing so, we empty out a lot of the carbon dioxide that would have normally stayed in the system as well as we're energizing the body and the mind to make the mind more fit for work. Needs that oxygen. Okay, so we start breathing well, remembering to breathe well. And by remembering to breathe well, we're actually fulfilling a lot of the Eightfold Noble Path already. Why? Sati, we woke up. Number two, we took control of the breathing and we're starting to breathe in long and to breathe out long. That will also build our confidence. Hey, I can do that. But then there's the next point, and that is, is that at the beginning of the each of the things you have, um, the mind as well as the body, if you cannot control the, the mind, you can't control the body. If you can't control the body, you can't control the mind. If you can control one, you can control the other, and we control one by controlling the other. So if we are actually thinking about having long, deep in-breath, then we can have long, deep in-breath, and we're controlling the mind as well as the body. But then the mind will wander away. But in the Mahasi method, it's much more likely to wander away because we don't have any skin in the game for that breathing. Even though the Mahasi himself, in some of the earliest Mahasi literature, dating back to 1950, he says that you have to seize the object. You have to jump on the object. You have to confront the object. And yet when Mahasi method is taught in the West, they're never taught to do it that way. They're just said to merely note the breath. They're merely to watch the breath. But in our, uh, but in the real case for the Buddha, no, we're actually going to take control of the breath. Mm. We're going to actually man manipulate it, and we're going to manipulate it in the direction of relaxation. Because step four of Anapanasati is the relaxation of the body. It's part of the, the process. And so if we're working very hard at our breathing, we're not relaxing the body at all. The body gets tired. When the body is relaxed, it doesn't get tired. So if you get tired of the breathing, that means that you're not breathing correctly. You're breathing in a way that's forced rather than a much more natural, easy, long, deep breath. <sighs> And so this is the way that we begin to practice the breathing. But also, by doing that, we recognize that the mind is very quick. It will jump. And that we're going to keep the mind in, uh, in the area of the here now 
not allowing the mind to go into the past or into the future. Going into the past to the future is definitely hindrances. Thinking about things that we want or thinking about things that we want to get rid of. An example is the student who had been sitting in meditation too long and their legs hurt. And they want the legs to stop hurting. If they want the legs to stop hurting, that means that now they're in hindrance. And in that hindrance, the legs may hurt more, especially if they're not taking care of themselves. So I would never recommend practicing in a way that causes discomfort, that we're looking for comfort. Shorter practice periods of time would be better than long periods of time. Practicing often for short periods is much better than practicing occasionally long periods. And yet the system is set up for long periods because of retreats and all of that. Guys who do retreats can't make a whole lot of money from people who don't come to their retreats. So what do you think is a good session, a good length? I mean, I've been trying to do about 45 minutes every morning. Um, like what, what do you think would be a good place for me to start in terms? Normally, I would finish this off at the end of our talk. And so let's continue on with what we're doing and I'll get to that uh, in about five or 10 minutes. Sounds good. But the important point here is that we have to make sure that the mind has wholesome objects in it. Next time we'll talk in great detail about that. But the important thing is to investigate the thoughts that we're having and bring them back to the here now. So thoughts about work, that's not here now. Thoughts about politics, that's not here now. Thoughts about other countries, that's not here now. The right kind of thinking is to think thoughts that have to do with what's happening right here, right now. Those are much more wholesome than thoughts about other places. You've heard of the phrase, I've got something on my mind. That always is an excuse for being distracted. I'm not thinking about what's happening. I'm not thinking about what I need to be thinking about. I'm thinking about something else because I've got Alabama or Tennessee on my mind or something. Georgia, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> but Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia, all three are not here now. <laughs> And so these are the kind of thoughts that we would want to have, and this is how we would want to practice. And doing that for shorter periods of time more often is better. So if you're um, the generally the goal is about an hour a day. But I would recommend that the students take that hour a day. And break it up. Into uh, more appropriate sessions. And the appropriateness would be based upon what is the human attention span. And that's normally about 20 minutes, so I would not recommend sitting longer than 20 minutes. But I would recommend sitting several times a day. So the three of them would be. Three minute three 
20 minute sessions. Four 15 minute sessions would be even better. Six 10 minute sessions would be the best if you can actually get in your mind in uh, shape in 10 minutes. Mm. And you should be. You should be able to do that. In fact, you should be able to get your mind in, in shape within one breath. Take a deep breath and say, ah, I feel good. And now do that for 10 minutes. Is to keep telling yourself how nice you feel because you actually do feel good. The only time that you feel bad is when you're thinking things that make you feel bad. So one of the things that I keep teaching the students over and over again, this is one that you can remember, and that is, is that you have been talking yourself into feeling bad your whole life. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. This is what we mean by gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. This is Anapanasati is to spend about 10 minutes gladdening the mind, brightening the mind. Hey, I can handle this. This is good. Wow, I really like this breath. Wow, what a really nice moment this is. Okay, so you hear the kind of thoughts that we're having are all top quality, wholesome thoughts. Not thoughts like someday my prince will come. But thoughts like, wow, Prince, here we are. <laughs> so this is the way we talk about it, being in the present moment, having thoughts about the present moment, gladdening the mind and appreciating how marvelous this present moment is. In the beginning, we talked about the, the fact that people why don't we just, as a human race, if, if life is suffering, then we should just all exercise. And the idea is, is that no, a lot of people want to stay alive. We want to continue to breathe. Why do you want to continue to be alive? Why do you want to breathe? It's because you like it, right? It's actually a little bit better. I mean, almost everybody that, I, that we can talk to, a few will disagree, but they've got some problems of their own. But almost everybody will agree that it's better to be alive rather than dead. Mm -hmm. Which means that it's better to be breathing than to be not breathing. Which means that we should like breathing. And if we like it, we should be paying attention to it about how nice it is and how much we do actually like it. But we don't do that when we're thinking about Aunt Susie and the fight we had with her. We're thinking about getting a raise or we're thinking about going to Asia or we're thinking about anything that's not here, not now. But when we are thinking about what's happening right here, right now, what are we doing right here, right now? We're breathing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the breathing, we should seize it. We should grab hold of it. We should uh, pay close attention to it, not just paying close attention to it, but begin to manipulate it, to take control. If you're not going to be able to take control of your life, then there's no reason to be able to take control of the breathing. But if you could use taking control of the breathing to help you take control of your thought, if you can control your thoughts and control your breathing, then you can learn to control your feelings. And if you can learn to control your feelings and your thoughts and your uh, breathing, 
then what else is there left? You're in charge now. You're not a victim to your own life anymore because now you're the boss. Now you're in charge. This again is the Samasamkapa of getting your act together and you know it. The Buddha was known as a lion. The attitude of a lion, the attitude of I can do this, the attitude of we've got this wire, the attitude of everything is okay. Everything is all right. Not a worry in the world, no place to go, no thing to do. And the spring comes and the grass goes all by itself. Doesn't need my help at all. I'm the boss here. And so it's a major change in attitude, and that attitude change also brings on the sukha. If we can control the feelings, then the first thing that we begin to tr control is the fact that we're no longer afraid, that right here, right now, we're secure. And if we have thoughts about the past, you can think of things that happened in the past where things were dangerous. If you dream up in the future, you can dream up all kinds of dangerous things to feel afraid about. But right here in this present moment, there's no danger. You don't have any pythons on your couch. There's no alligators calling on the floor. There are no mafia bosses breaking in. The SWAT team is not in the yard. Not that you know of, at least. Nothing going on, right? Everything is cool. <laughs> Why is it then when we're in meditation, we don't keep telling ourselves everything is all right? Why should I feel afraid? And yet many students will say, hey, when I'm meditating, I feel all of this anxiety. Well, you're feeling anxiety because your thoughts are anxious thoughts. If you start having anxious thoughts, you start having thoughts about how nice things are, then you begin to feel like how nice things are. This is the sukha. So I'm, I'm trying to understand how, um, you know, the, the practice of doing Mahasi and like, I don't want to start weaving in what I've been doing with uh, kind of being more of like a breath focused practice. And so, so I'm wondering, like, when other sensations arise, should I, uh, I mean, the, the way I've been doing it now is this very loose awareness where, like, what do you mean by sensation? When sensation uh, any like mental or physical object. Uh, so it could be any a feeling of like hot, cold pressure. It could be a thought, a smell, or, or a sound. Um, but You've been doing that your whole life, so why do you go around saying thought, smell, etc.? Well, well, so the, well, well, I'm not doing it. I'm not labeling anymore. I'm just, um, but like I will let my attention drift between like objects as they arise. Right, um, see, the difference is, is that you have not made the distinction that is so profound in the teaching of the Buddha. It's so profound that there's a number of suttas, and we'll start to cover that in detail. Right now, we're running at about an hour, and we've got uh, Keishan waiting. So let's let's talk about it in 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 the sense that wholesome thoughts are the only way to go, and yet the Mahasi method of teaching or the practice of it in the West still allows the hindrances to be there. And they talk about noting them as hindrances or noting them 
uh, wilder hindrances without bothering to do anything about it. Mm. This is actually having skin in the game. We've got to actually take control of the breath and take control of the mind. We have to decide with choice whether this thought is a wholesome thought or not a wholesome thought. And so thoughts that are just random kind of junk thoughts are not really wholesome. And so if you label a thought, label it as junk thought, and then say, aha, I see you, junk thought, and then throw it out. And by saying, aha, I see you, junk thought, you've already thrown it out because now the current thought is, aha, I see you. That's the current thought. And then the next thought would be, ah, I'm so glad I caught that. I'm not going down that path. And then the next thought would be, wow, I can sit here and just enjoy the moment. Everything is okay. Everything is all right. And I don't have to worry about that old thought. And so this is the skill to be developed, is the skill of recognizing what thoughts are wholesome and what thoughts are not wholesome, and to throw the unwholesome thoughts out. This is the primary teaching of the Buddha. And that's missed in the Western Mahasi with their noting. And because of that, the hindrances stay in and they don't do anything. And eventually when they get so excellent and so good at the development of the skill of noting that they note, 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 and they see everything. That's like walking into the city dump, but everything they see is garbage. Because they haven't bothered to clean the place up yet. That's why fearless, fearfulness and misery and disgust come up. Is because the person is really good at seeing garbage. But they haven't developed the skill of throwing the garbage out yet. Better develop the garbage of throwing. The, uh, better develop the habit of seeing what garbage is and then throwing it out rather than seeing it what it is and keeping it. Okay, so we've talked about much of what the path is. We've actually talked about feelings and mind and body, and we talked about the Eightfold Noble Path and how to apply the path to the correct practice, including the removal of unwholesome thoughts. So this is actually the framework for the teaching of the Buddha. Next time we can go into what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. But you can already get a handle on that by understanding what's in the past is unwholesome. What's happening right now is wholesome. What's going to happen in the future, you don't have a clue about. The clues you give yourself, though, are unwholesome. Because who knows what the future is going to bring. But if you develop the attitude right now, I feel really great and right now I can handle anything and we develop that as an attitude, then we can have that attitude no matter what happens. No matter how tough the going gets, no matter if our hotel of a thousand rooms fills up, we can handle that. That's the real thing. Shama Sankapa is get your act together 
or uh, another way of saying it is, is get the mind together, get it organized, get it unified with this confidence. Okay, so do you have any questions about what we're talking about? I, uh, <laughs> we covered a lot, so I think I need to, I took a lot of notes, so I think I need to like think, think a little bit and process it. Um, and, and, and I guess I think I, I will have a lot of questions once I start practicing this new way, because I've been doing this Mahasi style and um, I, I guess, like maybe it would be helpful if we could just go through, like I'm going through my breath, am I trying to know there's different qualities of my breath? Am I trying no, to? You're just trying to remember that this is a long, deep inbred, but you can do a lot of investigation of the body. That in fact, step three of Anapanasati means to experience a whole body. Mm. All right. So anything that is there can be seen, but it is actually. Um, here's a distinction. In the Mahasi method is is there is like whatever comes up. You be there for it passively. In other words, you're very much like a bird watcher and you want to watch every bird in the forest. And we're going to change it from being a bird watcher into being a bird catcher. So you need enough of the uh, watching enough birds to begin to figure out what bird it is that you need to catch. And then you need to plot your catching to catch that bird. Okay, so the Mahasi method is just like a no to anything, whatever is out there, you know, we're just looking at all the birds, but we're not going to get any. Where with the active method, when we've got skin in the game, we're actually going out catching birds, setting traps. So that we can remove those unwholesome vultures from our own mind. I see. And so it sounds like there's not like I'm not necessarily looking for any particular thing. With my breath it has to be on my breath. What that means, I will I will figure out. Yeah, go play with it. Experiment with it. This is a playful thing. I invite you to see the body mind as a new toy to play with. Mm. One of the benefits of being a human being is, is that you've got a, the, a human being's body to play with. And, and so my breath, it could incorporate, there might be mind and body both encompassed in the breath. I'll figure that out mm -hmm. later on. Keep, keep keep watching and noting, but also take control. Take over the breathing. Make it conscious. Make it long. Investigate the body with the long breath. And by taking a long, deep breath, your shoulders will actually rise. Can you actually feel the shoulders rising and falling? Mm. I see. Can you feel the touch of the cloth on your shirt? Uh, the shirt that you were as you're breathing in and out. So pay attention to the breathing. But it's an active meditation. Go seek it out. Don't just stand there waiting for whatever sensations occur. But actively go figure out what's going on. 
uh, Keyshawn calling you? <laughs> yeah, not a call. Okay, so when are you going to call again? Uh, I could call whenever, as frequently or as unfrequently as you would like, but I was thinking next week, if that's okay with you. I would say once or twice a week. Twice a week is good. Twice a week? I could definitely do that. Okay. This has been, this has been like, this session has been the most I've learned in the last three years. So I've, uh, I really so appreciate of your time and I can't wait to uh, become friends with you. Excellent, Tyler. Well, we'll see you again soon. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey.